Don't look now. everybody welcome to an episode of don't look now with your hosts will hegman and jenny mcdonald this week we flipped the script it's all on will to make this show work this week so will what you got all right well we got episode 100 so yeah we're we're turning things on ear and doing things different this time so so i'm i'm a giant history nerd and this is a person in a time in history that i i really kind of got obsessed with when I was maybe like a late preteen, early teen, because uh, I'm a gigantic nerd, like I said. So um, it was kind of fun going back to this, learning a bit more, putting it all together and talking about it. So, so Jenny, um, what does the phrase old bony mean to you? Nothing, but I totally assume ex- I know exactly what you're planning on talking about. <laughs> I mentioned this once upon a time, but uh See yeah. if you remember. What about the little corporal? There we go. Yep. Napoleon. Yes. Napoleon. Yes. So yeah, when I was a kid, um, a good friend of mine, Jimmy Hughes, um, got me into the Napoleonic Wars. Um, we had this book on tape, you know, Waterloo Day of Battle that went through like the entire Battle of Waterloo and talked about what happened. And I was, I was hooked. So got, in, got into Napoleon and all of the Napoleonic Wars and all that kind of stuff going on back then old school strategy and all that sort of stuff. And I thought it'd be fun to talk about Napoleon. So Napoleon Bonaparte. So we'll get into his nicknames in a bit, but so what do you know about Napoleon? What jumps to mind when you think Napoleon? uh, Lots of things actually jump to mind when I think about Napoleon, because there were about six articles this week about Napoleon and his remains and theories and all sorts of things. So um, I learned what they think, how he, they think that he died. Okay. I learned that at one point he was in exile. Um, oh, the thing where he's always got his hand in his shirt yeah. was not because his shirt was itchy, things like yeah, that, we'll, you know? Yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk about some of those things, I guess. So I just kind of made my, my quick list of like, most people have heard of Napoleon, but not everybody really knows that much about him. Kind of, I think when you think of Napoleon, most people think, short right, you know, right. guy in a military uniform with his hands stuffed into his waistcoat on a horse you know we have the whole napoleon complex for short aggressive people um so they think short they think he's french and he's a military genius of some sort so um, also something about his hat what was the hat he wears that tube he always hat. has that it's not a it's the, the big, I don't know what you call it, but yeah, the, the classic, it's like a, you know, it's the big hat that goes up that's, you know, it's just the classic Napoleon hat. I don't know what you call it other than the well, Napoleonic French hat. Well, he had 128 hat, of yeah. those. Yes. You know, that's, that was in one of the articles I read was that there were 128 <laughs> of them in his lifetime. Nice. But uh, I figured I would, I would go through kind of at least the, the basic assumptions on Napoleon kind of first because it's kind of fun because... You know, the first thing that's always fun to talk about, and it sounds like you probably ran into that, was Napoleon being short and the whole Napoleon complex being named after him because, you know, the whole idea that 
short people have to prove themselves and become, you know, angry, bitter, aggressive people and stuff. And that's where Napoleon became Napoleon sort of thing. And it's kind of fun because there's a lot of debate about whether he was actually short or not. So um, it kind of goes both ways. He was kind of assumed to be short for a long time. And then people were saying, no, no, there's proof that he's not. And we'll kind of go into some of those reasons why people did. And some people are back to thinking he's short again. <laughs> it's all kind of interesting. You know, you kind of think, why don't they just exhume him and measure him since everybody's obsessed with this? But uh, so one of the things about Napoleon is he basically you know, was listed in, um, you know, some letters from his valet and stuff like that as being five foot two. So everyone's like, yeah, he's a short little man. And people kind of fed off of that, but there's, there's a big dispute about the five foot two because of imperial, you know, non-metric measurements. So it's five foot two in French feet and inches. <laughs> it ends up that at the time, a French inch was generally 2.7 centimeters and an English imperial inch was 2.54, so shorter. So six five two on the French scale is between five five and five six, which still counts, you know, a little short today. But that was actually five six was dead average. Right. So he was probably of average height, maybe a little less than average height. You know, there's other things saying no, no, we really was measured properly. So nobody really knows. But there's been a lot of debate about that. And the interesting thing is nobody mentioned him being short early on. Um, a lot of this also comes from a political cartoonist called James Gilray that uh, basically lampooned all the major political figures at the time. And then early in Napoleon's reign, every time he would draw him, he never drew him short. He was just this loud, brash, boastful person. And later he started depicting him as tiny. Basically he had a whole thing where he snubbed an English official, you know, basically tore him a new one verbally in front of everybody at court. And People thought it was a you know kind of a petulant childlike way to behave, so they drew him tiny, and everybody loved it. So after that, he was always depicted as this tiny little guy. But it really kind of stuck after the fact, and Gilray really lampooned him all the time. So, um, you know, he basically had a had a quote where he basically said, you know, Gilroy did more to bring him down than all the all the armies of Europe during his reign. So. And so he there was, you go. He was post Napoleon or he was during Napoleon's time? He was at the time. So he was a contemporary political cartoonist. Wow. He was at the time basically lampooning Napoleon and the, the British press. So he was basically like. The and meme. we'll get into the fact that, yeah, he basically generated the meme of Napoleon being tiny. Nice. Meme creators. Got and, it. Yes. There you go. Um, the other thing is that Napoleon basically had his, you know, his uh, invincibles that were his personal guard, and they all had to be over six feet tall to be in it. So anytime he would be seen with this group of people, he would appear tiny. Because, That's crazy. Especially for the day, about. those people were huge. Right? Like, especially if five, yep. six was the norm at the time, how the hell did they find six foot tall people? Yeah. Like, So it's a whole bunch, of, whole bunch of giants, man, you know? Yeah. Okay. And... Uh, they were considered the, the invincibles or the immortals. And uh, kind of the funny joke was the rest of the army kind of made that crack about them, that they're invincible or immortal, because basically they were never put into battle. They just guarded him. So everybody else did the dying and they didn't. But, you know, there you go. Um, so kind of the next thing about Napoleon is, you know, he's immediately associated with France. You know, he's French. So Napoleon 
is kind of synonymous with a Frenchman. And the funny thing there is he's actually born in Corsica, which Corsica is one of the islands in the Mediterranean that's kind of there between France and Italy. You got Corsica and Sardinia. And these days, Sardinia is basically Italian territory and Corsica is French territory. But, you know, he grew up on Corsica, but his family is Italian. So they actually weren't Bonapartes. Their actual last name was Bonaparte. And they were generally of Italian descent. There wasn't an Italy at the time. They had all the sub-states. But his father was Genoese from Genoa and basically ended up in Corsica. His mother was also basically Italian descent Corsican. And he kind of changed how his name was pronounced later um, and made it more French. If anything, like when he was a child, they actually have a documented that basically he was belittled in school because he didn't speak French overly well because um, he had his native Corsican tongue and an accent. So, so his family is actually an Italian family, which is kind of funny because he's eventually revered as kind of one of the ultimate Frenchmen. And it ends up that he actually officially was born in France because Corsica was acquired by the French just days before he was born. So technically he was born in France, or at least French territory, but yeah, he's basically from a bunch of Italians. So there you go. So wait, I have a quick question. Yep. Who was the one that was had the toward love of Josephine? That wasn't yep, that's Napoleon. Him. Yep, that's that Napoleon. is him. Okay. Yep. So we'll, I remember we'll the to... love story. I'll make my yep. mother happy for a moment. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so yeah, we'll, we'll get, we will get to Josephine a little bit okay. here eventually, but yeah, it's Napoleon and Josephine. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. So kind of my, my last little of the, you know, things that people generally think about Napoleon is he's, you know, a military genius. Like, you know, he rides around on his horse. He's got his big hat. He sticks his hand in his waistcoat. He's tiny. He's French, and he's one of the greatest military leaders of all time. And that one, you know, we'll get into it more, is basically guilty as charged. He is considered one of history's greatest military leaders. Um, kind of like with all public figures, his reputation's kind of gone up and down over the years. Right. You know, I think immediately he was highly regarded as a military leader, and then everybody did the, yeah, he was just a thug, he got lucky. And then he went back to being a great military leader, and things have kind of bounced around, but even the people that, you know, will say he was a lucky thug or other things really eventually admit, say, okay, if you compare people to their contemporaries, you know, he might be the best military commander of all time. So wow. clearly he was highly successful militarily. Um, he didn't really invent new methods of battle. He was just really, really good at properly employing his forces and basically creating battles that would destroy an enemy's army. Um, he fought 70 battles as a general and basically won 62, lost eight. Um, and what I was saying is he was really good at basically creating the battle of annihilation. Back at that time, everybody thought the way you win wars is you have to lure your enemy's army out into battle and you have to find some way to force a battle where you can destroy it. They can't get away. You know, they can't just retreat and live to fight another day. You've got to basically seek out that big master stroke. And he was a master of that. Uh, kind of where he had problems later was, you know, things shifted. And eventually kind of you get to where you have today of the war of attrition, that basically everybody just fights and bleeds each other until whoever has enough men and material eventually wins. And he didn't adapt well to that. 
there we go. So, so of those yep. six of those battles that he was at, how many did he actually fight in? Did he, or was he just like a sideline strategist? Yeah, he. I mean, he was pretty much doing the strategy. He was he was not a general lead on the horse general. I mean, I I can't I can't say that for sure. I haven't really researched it. You know, my my main you know battle that I really followed as a kid that I know really well is Waterloo which right. we'll come to talk about every kind of has heard of Waterloo. It's his last, you know, great battle that he ends up losing. And at Waterloo, he's not in it at all. He actually has the gout really, really bad. Can't even like stand is in pain is in back in this tent, almost out of view. And that's one of the things that people think contributed to the loss is that he had to depend on other people for seeing what was going on and dictating what was happened without being there. So, I mean, I think he was, at the battle, he was around the battle, he'd be on his horse, but he's not charging with his soldiers behind him into the front lines sort right. of guy. So, but yeah, let's, let's just kind of go back to, you know, his, his general timeline. So yeah, we've established he's not really French, kind of. <laughs> he's technically French, but really they're, you know, an Italian family and that he's not necessarily really short. He is a great military leader. And, you know, if we go back to kind of his history, he was born in 1769. So basically, you know, a little bit before the American Revolution. So, you know, 1776 would have happened when he was seven. So, you know, he would have been, if he were in America, too young to fight in the Revolutionary War, but not by a lot. So you can think of, you know, looking at Hamilton, he'd be of a similar age to Hamilton's son. Um, had four brothers and three sisters. Um I guess parents were Carlo and Letizia Buonaparte. So not overly French there. Um, basically, he's the second child. So he has one older brother, Joseph. And we'll talk about it later. We had some serious nepotism going, but basically made all of his brothers and sisters, queens and kings all over Europe. Just kind of handed them various territories, which is kind of awesome. I kind of feel like I would expect the same. They did something yep. similar in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, right? Like yep, pretty much everywhere like that this. they defended, put one yep. of the Pevensey kids in. Yep. So what I found fun was basically all of, all of them actually have really kind of original Italian names and they're all Francified later. So, you know, the oldest is Joseph. I mean, his actual given name is Giuseppe. Um, Napoleon was actually... Nabulone. Um, then you had Lucian was after him or Luciano. Um, Eliza was actually Maria Anna. They had Louis Bonaparte that was actually Luigi for those Mario players out there. Um, Maria Paola was Pauline. Maria Anazidia is Caroline. And then Geralmo is Jerome. So Youngest was Jerome, but he basically had, you know, those four brothers. So he had three brothers, three sisters that he set up all over the place and they were terrible at ruling, but Hey, they were, they were blood. So they got to do something. So, so they were terrible related to the right, the right guy, I guess. I was going to say, how on earth did he become such a strategist if they weren't so great at leading? Like yeah, that's what, that's, what's insane about this. What I find really interesting about it is how fast he rises and he rises from nothing. I mean, they are minor nobility, but I mean, really minor nobility. I mean, they're, you know, a small family in Corsica. They, they don't have any pull anywhere, anything. He's a nobody. 
So you got this young nobody from Corsica that gets made fun of as a kid and picked on because he doesn't speak French well enough. And he becomes a uh, second lieutenant in the French army artillery at 19. So in 1785, he's 19 years old. He joins the army, gets in the artillery, you know, four years later. So he's 23 is when the French revolution happens. And really this is kind of what's, brings him to fame and everything else is he basically joins the revolutionary side of things. He fights for the Republic in Corsica, gets some notoriety. And what's amazing to me is basically the next year. So he's 24, he gets made a general. So you, at 24, he gets at made 24. A general. He's a, he's a brigadier general in the French army. That's crazy. And he's the head of the French army in Italy's artillery. So he's the artillery commander for the army in Italy. And, you know, basically a couple of years later, age 26, he becomes engaged to Desiree Clary. You might notice is not Josephine. And he writes a romance novel called Clisson et Eugenie based on his romance with her. So I'll have to try to pick up his romance novel sometime. And I feel like it's just going to be straight porn. I'm just going to give you this. <laughs> I mean, N Napoleon porn sounds pretty damn interesting. So, you know, you got, you got to read Napoleon's dirty novella about there you go. romance with, with Desiree. So basically he refuses a whole bunch of commands, refused to go various places. And he's basically effectively demoted. He's removed of command and they send him to Paris without any troops to care, you know, command. So but why did well, he remove in... all these posts? Is it because of her or because of... Yeah, part of it is like he didn't want to get sent to various places. I think one of the posts was they were going to send him to Turkey to you know con consult with the Sultan. I think they were going to then send him to like the west coast of France to put down some kind of rebellion. And he really didn't want any part of any of this for whatever reason. So he okay. ends up in Paris kind of down on his fortunes. You know, he's not a bright shining star anymore. But while he's in Paris, basically, you know, the royalists try to stage a coup to put one of the Bourbon leaders back on the throne, and he helps put it down. Um, basically, his cannons in the street stop it, and he becomes famous. So he's suddenly this guy that shut down the coup. Everybody's excited. Everybody in, you know, in charge is all excited that, you know, okay, this guy's cool and he gets in close with the new government. So now he's kind of the favorite military person of the new government people. And it's at this time he falls for Josephine de Beauharnais, our good old Josephine. So, you know, she is basically, I believe, a divorcee at the time. And they marry in 1796, age 27, and she's kind of the big love of his life. So, He's obsessed with Josephine. So mm -hmm. yeah, if you're into romances and everything, Napoleon and Josephine are kind of the big thing. So yeah, because you can read their letters and stuff and see all the treasures he brought her. And yep, and then you're going to yeah. see some interesting stuff later relating to that. <laughs> so basically, right after, like a couple days after he marries Josephine, um, because he's got his new buddies in the government, he takes control of the army of Italy. So one of the confusing things here is, you know, there is no Italy. Like there's not right. a country of Italy. There are all these small sub-states. So there's Genoa and, you know, the what's left of the Venetian Empire and a bunch of other, you know, Lombardy and all these other states that are all 
all hanging around in Italy and all the great powers are kind of fighting over them. So the French are trying to take over Italy. The Austrians are trying to take over Italy. You know, everybody's kind of warring over this stuff. And he basically takes over the French army in Italy and basically kind of just starts his military role. So he just immediately has success after success. He captures Venice for like the first time in like a thousand years or something. Um, and he becomes really famous. So once he's had these successes in Italy, he's now, I mean, he's young, he's still in his twenties. He's the commander of this entire army. He's famous back in France. He's playing politics with the big boys in Paris. And basically one of the factions in Paris, you know, there was all kinds of craziness going on with the new revolutionary government and everything else. And there's basically a coup. So, the people wanting to run this coup basically enlist him for, you know, the military aid in the coup. And he basically pulls off the coup within a coup. So they think they've hired him to put them in charge, but he's actually set it up so that he will be in charge. I mean, so he basically strategy right there, right? Just, just double rolls it and becomes the man in charge. Nice. So, boom, he's suddenly in charge, and he basically creates a new government, and he becomes first consul of France. And basically, he, there are two other consuls, but he appoints them. So, you know. So, it's like a puppet government. It's his government. Yep. So, he basically becomes in charge in 1799 at age 30. Wow. So, you know, he'd had some campaigns, comes back, pulls this coup within a coup. 1799, he's now first consul. There are two other consuls, but he appoints them directly. So they officially have a republic, people vote, but he's effectively the dictator. And you know, I saw the thing and it's like 99.9% .9 of people vote for Napoleon, kind of straight out of the old, you know, Eastern Bloc elections that used to happen, you know. Right. Whole basically Russian president reelected with 99.9% .9 of the votes. And you're like, hmm, you know. That doesn't but, sound suspicious at all. That doesn't sound suspicious at all, yeah. So he's effectively now the dictator of France. And Wait, wasn't there like royal people still in France at this time? So at this point, it's still, it's basically, it's a republic. So okay. since the revolution, they have been a republic. But there's this constant infighting between the people that want to put the royals back on the throne. There's still Louis out there that want to get back right. on the throne. There are different groups inside the Republic that want to run the Republic. And he basically uses all this infighting to become the leader. And okay. he controls the army, so he controls everything. So he's, you know, he's the leader. He's got the army behind him. He establishes the, you know, the Grand Army of France, which he builds up to over 700,000 men. And he basically just, to put it bluntly, starts kicking ass all over Europe. So... Once he's in charge, he crosses into the Alps, into Italy, crushes Austria, you know, gets a peace treaty with England, and back home, they elect him consul for life. So he's now consul for life. Okay. okay. And so he's basically 30, thir early 30s in charge of all of France, you know, this huge military leader, and it's kind of making me feel highly inadequate. <laughs> I kind of feel like 
if you can take the Alps that like you're a pretty successful campaign person. Yeah, because... I mean, this is kind of straight out of Hannibal sort of thing. So right. He crosses the Alps and nobody thinks he can. He crushes everybody. Exactly. You know, he's now consul. He's even more famous because he's won this battle in northern Italy. And during his consulate, basically, he's got to pay pay for wars because he had all these wars that he's doing and he wants to have more. So he's planning expansion. So he needs some cash. So it's during this time that, A, he reinstates slavery in French colonies. Not a good thing. Right. And the big thing for the U.S. is this is when he sells off Louisiana to Jefferson. So the Louisiana Purchase happens in 1804. Napoleon's 35. I mean, I, you know, whenever I've seen things like this before, I'm assuming this is like a 50-year-old man or something. This is, you know, a dude yeah. in his mid-30s. Yeah, he's pretty successful, pretty young. You know, 1804, he becomes, he gets elected emperor. So they put out another fake election, basically, although he's really popular, so he probably would have won it anyway. And he's actually elected emperor for life. So they create the French empire. And he is now the emperor, so he's going to get crowned. So basically, they're back to a monarch. So he's kind of pulled the official Julius Caesar, kind of grabbed control, made himself a monarch. And... This is where Beethoven loses his shit because basically Beethoven was a huge Napoleon fan and thought Napoleon was fighting for the people. And then Napoleon pulls a, Hey, I'm emperor now. And Beethoven is pissed. Good for Beethoven. Yeah. What song did he create in protest? So, so in protest, eventually, basically he had, I believe it's Eroica. One of his symphonies was going to be dedicated to Napoleon and he axed it. And the other big thing is later when Napoleon goes down, he writes a, a piece basically dedicated to that battle. So, but uh, nice sidebar. What I love about Napoleon's coronation is like, okay, they get the Pope to come to Paris to officiate. So the Pope is, you know, Napoleon is Catholic. He's going to have the Pope crown him, you know, in the cathedral, everything is all set up day of the defense, you know, the actual event, Napoleon basically decides, nah, I'm going to crown myself. Yep. So he just takes the crown from the Pope and crowns himself because he owes power to no one. The only one he owes power to is himself. He is, he is a power in and of himself. Screw you, Pope. This is all me. This was not during the reign of the false Pope in Avignon, right? Nope. nope. I don't think so. I think this is, this is, it could be, I know I haven't, I didn't study it, but it's basically Pope, Pope Pius the seventh. I do not know my Pope's well, but Oh, it might be actually now. But could, okay, it could be the French Pope. Wouldn't yeah, shock Yeah, that's me. what I was wondering. Yeah. But he basically says, nope, you know, I crown myself emperor, which is both a egomaniacal thing to do and a completely baller thing to do. So everyone is just shocked. And there you go. Shocked. I, I mean, oh my God. shocked guys, because like it doesn't feel like that's something that would shock people. Yeah, but it's it's impressive when not even any of the crazy monarchs that had come before over all the years, all your Louis and everything else, you know, even they bowed down to the Pope. But Napoleon is just like, nope, nope, it's me. So I think, I think you just really enjoy um, people that don't like the Pope, like Henry VIII. And now Napoleon. <laughs> it was the 1390s, by the way, that yeah, the yeah. French had their own post. Okay, okay, so we're we're way off. All right. Yeah. So there's my history for you. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's going to go a little Henry VIII before long. But but now that he's emperor, it's basically back to war. So what keeps happening is basically the rest of Europe keeps 
uniting, trying to stop him, and he keeps smashing them. So you have basically these things where everybody comes together. There's the war of the first coalition, the second coalition, the third coalition, the fourth coalition, the fifth coalition. And all of these coalitions basically just get crushed by Napoleon. So his big battle comes here after he becomes emperor. Basically, you know, the armies of the United Kingdom, the Holy Roman Empire, Austria, Russia, Sweden, all come together to try to defeat him. And he manages to lure them all out and crush them at the Battle of Austerlitz, which is kind of his most famous victory, where he basically just destroys all these armies sets up the Confederation of the Rhine, basically all these little German states that now belong to him effectively, and then turns around and conquers Spain. And now basically almost all of Western Europe basically belongs to him. So is if it's not directly state? French, it's some satellite state that is effectively French. So sets up is all of his brothers and sisters. Like and other conquerors during the time, is this all the same region? So like, if you looked at like Alexander the Great's conquering or like the Ottoman empire, it's all that same highly contested. You get, you get all these things going back and forth. So almost everybody in Europe is going back and forth in some of these places. So like in the end, we'll talk about Waterloo and everybody, it ends up basically being in Belgium and Belgium has been Europe, Europe's battleground since the beginning of time. Right. Flat ground where everybody has to go to fight. And it's where all your Franks fight the Germans every once in a while. So it just seems to happen over and over and over again. So it's always interesting that, you know, I mean, there's just battles in these areas forever. Right. But, you know, he basically, you know, has all this stuff, sets everything up. And this is where he goes a little Henry VIII. So in 1810, he basically is upset that he hasn't produced an heir. Sounds Josephine, familiar. get it together. Yep. He's like, come on, Josephine give me a baby. And she hasn't. So he divorces Josephine in 1810 and Ooh. marries Marie Louise, Duchess of Parma. Mm -hmm. And he then does actually immediately have a son with her who he declares the King of Rome as an infant. As you do. <laughs> yep. But the general thing is from everything I've heard is yes, he is divorced from Josephine, but he is still with Josephine. Yep. Well, I mean, he didn't necessarily want to leave her. He just wanted yeah. an heir. Yeah, exactly. A little different than anything else. He's out. He's after the heir. He's got this whole, you know, legitimate son thing. But he and Josephine are still a thing. So yeah. And basically, the high watermark of the whole French Empire comes in 1812. So at that point, basically, he decides, you know what? I'm tired of these Russians. Maybe siding with the British. I'm going to crush them. So at this point, you know, the Grand Army of France has swollen to huge side that, you know, they've just had success everywhere and decides he's going to invade Russia, which everybody now knows this is one of those classic things that like you don't invade Russia. You know? And this is the first big attempt that everybody thinks about. So everybody's like, yes, you know, Napoleon lost in Russia. He was defeated in Russia. And it's actually a little more interesting than that. So. They invade Russia and they push all the way to the outskirts of Moscow. And there you have, you know, the Battle of Borodino. So this is the big battle with the Russians. This is the battle that's commemorated in the 1812 overture. So for those that, you know, their classical music or at least show up at the 4th of July celebrations, people play the 1812 overture all the time, used to play it at K-State Band Day all the time, set off the cannons. 
everything else. The big celebration at the end of the 1812 overture is the Battle of Borodino, where the Russians conquered Napoleon, but they actually didn't. They lost. Napoleon won the Battle of Borodino, which is kind of funny. A, that there's this huge symphony dedicated to the battle that he actually won, right? not the Russians. And two, that somehow this has turned into American patriotic song of the Russians conquering yet not Napoleon, but it's all interesting. So I think we just like to blow shit up as Americans. I'm not. Yeah, I think we just love the fact that they're freaking cannons in this thing. So it's it's yeah, we did American. Damn it, you know. At my high school, even when we played in band, we played the 1812 overture, and the National Guard came and blew off ordinances. So like, yep, it's just our thing. There's just nothing more American than cannons going off all over the place and church bells ringing everywhere. Yes, so is it seems unnecessary. Yep. But the fun thing is, yeah, they, they won this battle, but, you know, it's what's classically called a Pyrrhic victory. That Basically, they win, but they lose by winning. They lose so many troops in winning this battle that they just don't have any fighting strength left. And after winning the battle, they actually move into Moscow. So Napoleon made it to Moscow. He occupied Moscow. He toured around St. Basil's Cathedral. But they really can't hold Moscow because they just don't have the men and they have the supply line going all the way back to France. And they've got to pull back. So they start pulling back. And that's when the famous Russian winter hits and they're all starving. And they're being attacked by Russian partisans and Cossacks in the winter. And basically, almost no one makes it back to France. So they lose like something like 360,000 troops die in this whole campaign. They get back only like 35,000 Frenchmen make it back. I think the army has... 60, 70,000, but of those, only about half of them are actually French, and the others are from different places that joined the army. So this is a, you know, basically crushing defeat that wasn't really a military defeat, but in fact, you know, is. So he's not really defeated in his whole quest to crush Russia, but he doesn't crush Russia, and instead he's lost his army. Wow. So finally, now that the army is... In disarray, you have the War of the Sixth Coalition. So all the allies get together a sixth time and say, he's finally weak. We're going to go after him. And now that they're weakened in this, and they've also been fighting in Spain this whole time, the English push up from Spain. You know, the Austrians come in, the Prussians come in, and he's basically pressed on all sides. And even with everybody doing this, he still like fights the six days campaign and wins multiple battles, but he can't turn the tide of the war. And the French leaders back in Paris turn on him, surrender and depose him. So he is no longer emperor. Wait, how do you get deposed if you're emperor for life? I didn't think that they could really just be like, oh, never mind. We changed our mind, bro. They're just like, nope. You're no longer emperor. And he basically agrees. He basically says, well, in the interest of France, I will step aside and no longer lay claim to these things. And mm-hmm. in agreeing to do that, they exile him to Elba. So Elba is this little Mediterranean island near Italy. It's basically between Corsica and Italy. So this is 1814. So he's still only 45 years old. He's almost, you know, like a year older than me. He's fought all these battles. He's basically won all of Europe, lost all of Europe been deposed, sent to this island, and they stick Louis XVIII on the throne, and Louis XVIII is now king of France. Ew. So a hell of a lot of stuff in 45 years. But then stuff, shit goes down. So the fun stuff happens 
1815, the next year, Napoleon escapes Elba. So basically gets off the island with 700 men and shows up in France. <laughs> that doesn't sound like an escape. That sounds like a like tactical decision. Like, hey, we were in exile. Let's everybody get well together. Yep. We're going to just take care of each other for a year. We're going to train a little bit harder. And I've got some ideas, guys. Let's save yep. some cash and we're going to go on a trip together. So pretty much, you know, you can have a lot of ships to get 700 men from Elba back into southern France. So he basically, right. you know, lands in, you know, the uh, the French Riviera and starts moving north. And, you know, the French army sent out to intercept him. Basically, uh, you know, a regiment set out under Marshal Ney, who was one of his great supporters. May has told everybody back in Paris, I'm going to bring him back in chains. Army shows up. This is kind of like your great movie style scene. I mean, I want to see this played out in some movie, but basically, you know, the, the army shows up in their ranks and Napoleon walks out from his group completely alone, walks alone into gun range of the army and, you know, basically says, you know, here I am, kill your emperor if you want. And all the soldiers in the army just immediately shout, you know, Vive l'Empereur! Long live the emperor! And bam, rest is history. He's back. So That's army so just says, yep, we're with you. And That's so funny. Because essentially he just walked off and he was like, hey guys, I'm back! Are you ready to yep. go play? Cool, yeah, let's like, go! They're all like, sweet! So Ney turns again and Ney is now his ally again. And they they head toward Paris. And the French are excited. Louis freaks out and flees to Belgium and Napoleon's in charge again. So bam, he's back in charge of France. And this whole time period is called the hundred days. So basically in a hundred days, he shows up, is running France again, gathers an army of 200,000 people and heads off to go fight the British and the Prussians. That's pretty impressive. Not going to lie. It's pretty wild. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is, this is definitely movie style stuff. Well, and it and, sounds like he was well-loved by his people. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to do all that. Yeah, and that's one of the the nicknames I had. We'll kind of get into that in our, our rabbit hole. But he was called the Little Corporal. And that was just kind of a, a general term of endearment from the army that, like, you know, basically his soldiers loved him. And, you know, he's, he's the Little Corporal. He, you know, he at least had that reputation among his people. It wasn't like his soldiers hated Napoleon. And that's... One of the big things that he had that I haven't really got into, but he basically created, you know, the Grand Army of France. And the big difference with the Grand Army of France versus almost all these other armies is that it is a meritocracy. He does not care where you're from. He does not care if you are rich or poor or noble or not. You rise up the ranks because you're good. And, you know, son of some miller somewhere can be a general and can be a field marshal. And that is vastly different than how it is all over Europe. And the army responds to it. Hey, I mean, it's an incredibly efficient army now because the good people are actually in charge. Right. And the soldiers know that, you know, they're not just drudges being, you know, herded around by a whole bunch of aristocrats. They're, you know, they're being put in, you know, people in charge of them have merit. They're there because they've earned it. And they too can earn it. And it's really the first army that's really like that. So they have the whole esprit de corps sort of thing. I mean, they, you know, they are kind of the, the I always think it kind of a lot of people put it as kind of the first modern army where you have a, you know, really kind of volunteer core of people that are in this army. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why they're, you know, highly successful. 
So he basically goes off to fight the British and the Prussians that are gathering to try to get rid of him again. And basically heads up to what's now Belgium at the time. I guess it was the Netherlands because Belgium didn't exist yet. But And his plan is to try to separate the British and the Prussians. So when I'm saying Prussians, a lot of people might think I'm saying Russians. But Prussia is a region of Germany. So whenever you think of old school German military might, that's Prussia. So all the old school German generals and all that sort of stuff, it's all Prussian tradition. And you know, this is back before there was a Germany. So Prussia was the, the major state in Germany. And basically they, they come from you know the East, the British are there. And Napoleon's concept is to try to separate them and beat them both separately before they can hook up. So he basically fights the British and gives battle to, you know, the Duke of Wellington, who is the, you know, great English general at Waterloo in Belgium. And, you know, effectively, you know, the British just get, take a pounding and the French hit them and hit them and hit them and hit them. And the main thing they do is they manage to withstand it. Um, Kind of late in the battle, the French, you know, Marshal Ney, who was the one that came out to arrest Napoleon, the turn basically is known for being incredibly brave and kind of stupid. Set up this huge horse charge, just drive the British off the field, thinking that they're broken, but they're not. He comes over the hill, finds that they're all in formation. The charge fails, the French are in trouble, and right then the Prussians show up, and both armies join up, and the French are driven off the field, and they lose. And, you know, it's interesting because this is all Napoleon's got the gout. He can't even really see what's happening during the battle. There's lots of contention about what would happen if he'd truly been in command at the battle and could see what was going on, that he wouldn't have let that charge happen, all this kind of stuff. But basically has this crushing defeat. And that's kind of the end for Napoleon. You know, the French army is crushed. He retreats back to Paris, but the people have turned against him because he's lost. And they're like, screw it. He actually thinks about fleeing to the United States. That's actually his plan, but the British are blocking all the ports so he can't get out, so he surrenders again. And then he's exiled again, this time to St. Helena, which is a tiny island in the Atlantic Ocean in the middle of nowhere. So he's exiled in 1815 at age 46, and that's kind of the end for him. So, like, <clears throat> Exile for people like this isn't like exile for like normal people, right? Yeah, like, no, he's, he's on an island, he's got his own staff, and you know place to live and everything. Apparently it's damp and not pleasant and it's kind of unhealthy and he complains the entire time he's there that it's horrible, but it's not exactly prison. So, right. But all the same, basically he writes his memoirs. He writes a book about Julius Caesar and he dies in 1821, basically, you know, five, six years after getting there at age 51. And you might've read the thing. Basically, I think most of the consensus now is that he died of stomach cancer. Yep. Um, you know, there was contention that he might've been poisoned and all kinds of other things because he had these stomach issues. But I think most people have decided now on stomach cancer. So the end of Napoleon. That's what they said. Um, they just recently uncovered a bunch of his doctor's notes, like letters that his doctor wrote and the symptoms seem to match with stomach cancer. Yep. All right. So that's kind of the story of Napoleon, all of his conquests, his rise, his fall. But what's crazy is, I mean, he goes from a 19-year-old lieutenant that nobody knows to emperor at 35. 
Yeah, that's insane. That's a I mean, quick turnaround. Yeah, I mean, that's 16 years. He goes from a nobody to somebody that's in charge of all of Western Europe. I mean, it's nuts. So, I mean, you have to have, you know, regardless of his bad qualities, the guy had to have some serious drive and charisma to pull that crap off. Exactly. Man, that's just, I think these are the kind of stories, though, that people get in their heads when they think about, like, the so-called American dream. It's yeah. like, you've, you've got a couple anomalies like him that come out of freaking yeah. left field and go from being like a poor farm kid to being the yeah. emperor for life. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, it's absolutely wild. Yeah. So Good down for the... him, except for when it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> except for when he did horrible things, you know. Right. Kind of that debate is Napoleon a good guy or a bad guy? It's the kind of the classic American question and the classic kid question. If you right. talk about somebody and the, you know, the answer is always it's complicated. It is complicated because probably at the time it seemed like he was a good person. And then like victory yeah. is seen, you know, we see victory yeah. from the eye of the winner. Yep. So everything, I mean, you know, he, he had brutal put downs of people, killed lots of people, made, you know, horrible. But a lot of people, you know, everybody was doing that at the time. Right. Kind of get to the, well, he was a dictator, but most of Europe was a monarchy. So you can't really get on him for being a monarch. Right. You know, main thing is that, you know, he, he basically, you know, just depends on your point of view. The English for the English, he was horrible. And we'll talk about that in just a second for the French. He was fantastic. And for random people he ran into, he was either great or horrifying, depending upon what he did to your town when he rolled through and conquered it. So, Right. All right. So down the rabbit hole. So you brought it up before. He always, in the pictures, has his hand inside his waistcoat. You know, that classic there, hand in the hand in the chest, under it. You know, why the hell did he have his hand in his waistcoat? And everybody's like, did he have an itch? Was it early signs of stomach cancer that he was rubbing his stomach? You know, what's what's the deal? And the real answer is actually that it was just the painting fad of the time. That at that time, the artists were into emulating ancient Rome. And there was an ancient Roman tradition of showing Roman senators and people of high dignity with their hand inside their toga like that. And it be kind of came the thing. And All once right. Napoleon did it, then everybody did it. So I had think the the artists real that apparently artists... Did it so much that there was a running joke that artists didn't know how to draw a hand, so they just. That's what I was just gonna say. Like the truth of the matter is, they just didn't know how to draw a hand. Right? Yeah, exactly. So that that could be it too. But that's that's you know, it really it was really just a stylistic thing at the time, and it really wasn't something that he walked around doing all the time. I don't know. Um, as a memory holding citizen, I tend to <laughs> hold my hand under that spot a lot. So yeah. I'm sure it's a nice comfort spot, you know. It is. So, I mean, maybe, maybe could he just be. has some yeah. large man boobs that yeah, he yeah. rested his hand under. Who knows? Know. Yeah. So the other, other fun thing about him is he, he is just about the original boogeyman. So I called him, you know, old bony or bony. And I mean, the, the British literally used him to terrify their children. So Aww. when he was at his height, he was the boogeyman. He was what people used to scare their kids straight. So rather than, you know, kind of veered away instead of, you know, if you do these bad things, the devil will get you. It was old Boney's going to get you. You misbehave in class. Old Boney's going to eat you. So, I mean, he, he was literally used as the boogeyman in Britain. I mean, kids grew up terrified of Boney. And. Well, he you know, cannibalized was, people, it sounds like when you say it like that. Yeah. 
crazy. And but what's funny is like there is a kind of classic poem that is about him eating kids. Sure. And everybody holds it up as, yes, this is, you know, one of the great things that started this whole boogeyman thing with him. But they've actually found that that poem is actually a French poem and it's actually written about Wellington. <laughs> so there you go. Um, basically, Wellington the French the French one. found Wellington to be a scary boogeyman and the English found Napoleon to be a scary boogeyman. And there you go. The but I mean, it was so the guy that in Glasgow has the cone on his head, right? Oh, uh, Wellington. Is that is he? the Yeah. One that has... Yeah, there's the, uh, at least in, uh, in London, basically, I don't know, it's maybe, I was trying to think of where, because Trafalgar Square is Nelson, but somewhere you've got, I'm sure, I'm sure in Glasgow, you've got Wellington, Wellington's all over the place. He's kind of the, the British military hero. I mean, Nelson is the mil the Navy hero, Wellington is the army hero, and he's everywhere. It's kind of the classic military man that you know is simultaneously a british hero but they're all actually terrified of at the same time everybody has their propaganda at the time man yep but the funny thing is i mean it was so much that people for a long time thought the term boogeyman actually came from bony but Aww. it doesn't but i mean it became it became synonymous i mean he really literally was the boogeyman um the other thing i find ironic is he was a huge proponent of the metric system. He's the one that really pushed for the metric system to be adopted, which is hilarious because all of the ambiguity of his height is because the people weren't using the metric system. I mean, he was an order military kind of guy, believed in science and wanted the metric system to be implemented. So there you go. Maybe that's part of why we just wouldn't do it was, you know, we heard all these stories about Bonaparte and we weren't <laughs> about to do this. It's like Napoleon likes that stuff, man. That's scary. Yeah. We're very anti-Napoleonic wars. All right. Another thing, you know, you have to call up your dietitian because sweet treats named after Napoleon. So a lot of people know of, you know, the, the patisserie called the Napoleon. Um, fairly famous. And I looked up, you know, did Napoleon eat it a lot? Did he have a big sweet tooth? And it ends up, no, it was actually named the Neapolitan. And when it became really popular in the early 1800s was when Napoleon was in power. And when it got brought to England, the English mispronounced it and started calling it the Napoleon instead of the Neapolitan. And voila. So wait, so Neapolitan, the British, what's the difference between a Neapolitan and Neap this guy? Napoleon? Yes. So a Neapolitan is just somebody from Napoli. Gotcha. And I mean, I think his name derives from that. But, but yeah, you know, it's basically just a, a sweet treat from Napoli and voila, became the Napoleon. And that's what, if you watch the British baking show, it's what they call a mille foy, the thousand oh, okay. leaves. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Little patisserie cake with the super, super thin little cake layers is the Napoleon. And uh, have you ever watched that show and you thought, I don't want that? Yeah, a lot of times because they're British. They have some nasty stuff. You do. You're like, I'm going to cover this in beetroot. And you're like, oh, what the hell are you doing? And are we going to do that then, friends? Okay. Yeah. This cake will taste great because I'm making it beet. I'm like, who wants a beet cake? Nasty. All right. Um, another thing, his final resting place, got to see it in Paris. So eventually after all this, and I, I did not go through and record the story, and I don't remember it well enough, so I don't want to get it messed up. But eventually they do bring his body back to France to be interred. And it's well after his death. And... He's interred at Les Invalides in Paris. So there's Les Invalides, which is now basically the, you know, the military command college and 
military history museum and there's this huge kind of cathedral attached to it where he is entombed as well as you know other famous great French generals and when you walk in it's impressive there's this huge circular thing and you have to his thing is below ground level and intentionally so you have to walk in and you have to bow to Napoleon when you see him because his casket is below ground level in this huge display so that is an intentional thing that everybody must bow to him. I feel like they waited to bring Napoleon back to France until they were like certain he was dead though. Like, yeah, it, it was basically a thing well after his death, basically kind of a deal was struck to bring his remains back, you know, kind of a point of French, fr- French pride kind of thing. Um, they were probably like, we just want to make sure that he can't, this isn't a joke. And like, <laughs> he's just, not going to just, <laughs> we're just going to stick a stake in him just to be sure. That's Exactly. We just need to keep an eye on him. So we're going to yep. put, it's going to be a little bit of work to get to him. And then we've got a camera on him 24 Of course, you know, my introduction to Napoleon's tomb was way back when I was a kid and I was watching G.I. Joe and they have this whole, whole series of things where the, you know, Cobra is going around and collecting the DNA of all the great military leaders to make their great leader to fight G.I. Joe. And like they, they invade Napoleon's tomb and get his DNA and they get Caesar's DNA and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's not a bad plan. But uh, in terms of his heirs, he did have his son. Um, Napoleon II, but Napoleon II never really ruled France. He was named King of Rome, but he died at 21, and that kind of ended his direct line. Um, he had a nephew that basically did depose Louis XVIII and became Napoleon III, King of France. And he was eventually basically defeated by the Germans, and French monarchy ended from then on, and it basically has been a republic ever since. I think it's real interesting. I mean, it, honestly, it, it sounds like genetically speaking, his offspring aren't so hot at what they do. Yep. Yeah. I mean, basically all of his brothers and sisters were kind of fuck ups. And as was, you know, his nephew managed to depose the king, but he was kind of a bit of a fuck up too. And, you know, I, I thought it was interesting that, I, you know, there was a fun quote that basically all great you know, it was basically directed at Napoleon III as an insult, but basically, you know, all great characters in history end up being repeated. You know, they come back again as an echo, but the first time, I can't remember the first time, is a tragedy, the second time is a farce. So, you know, made me presently think about Donald Trump basically being the farcical return of, you know, Mussolini, but whatever. Um, keep my politics out of it from here on, but... That's not really political now because the guy tried to overthrow the U.S. government. So, oh well, there you go. Um, and last, basically, his nepotism. I kind of promised, you know, all of his brothers and sisters. So Joseph, his older brother, he made the king of Naples, but he was terrible at it. So he then reinstated him as king of Spain instead. Apparently, he felt Spain was lesser than Naples, or at least not a big pain in his ass because it was further away. Um, Lucian is. Next younger brother was actually in charge of like the French legislature at the time that Napoleon had a coup and everything. But Lucien got critical of him and basically was estranged and never really got to be king of anywhere because he actually thought Napoleon was not good. Um, Elisa, his sister, became princess of Pombiano and Luca and the Grand Duchess of Tuscany. His brother Louis or Luigi became king of Holland. Pauline was his favorite sister. She was kind of a a noted seductress and, you know, promiscuous woman that ran around and had fun. And she became the princess of Gestala, 
And she was actually the only one that came to elbow with him. So she was probably the only sibling that actually cared about him. Um, Caroline became the Grand Duchess of Cleves and Berg and the Queen of Naples. And little brother Jerome became King of Westphalia and was famous for extravagant irresponsibility. So there you go. The end of the Napoleon clan. Wild. Well, and there's always that great story about the troops in uh, Egypt, right? Oh, yeah. The, the Sphinx story? Yeah. Yeah, and that's another one that they've proven didn't actually happen, unfortunately. <laughs> I know. It's, so, I for mean, those that don't know it, basically, that... supposedly the Sphinx is missing its nose because Napoleon had them shoot it with a cannon practice. for target practice. Right. But that's actually not true. So. I know. That's sad. It sounds awesome. That... It does. Yeah. It sounds like one, one of those the, One of the things on the list of you know falsehoods about Napoleon, but yeah. They had to create some reasons for you to hate him. And yeah, like... exactly. That Man, shot the damn the, nose off the Sphinx, you know. Yeah, that bastard. Yep. Wild. Wild. Oh, Napoleon. The good stuff. So, you know, and also those of us remember, you know, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure that he's a Ziggy Piggy. So, you know, that is, that is awesome where Napoleon runs amok at the water park and then ends up pigging out at the ice cream. Yes. And, and gets it's his sticker. So, because he's stuff. in his long johns or something. If I yeah, remember. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Starts throwing kids out of the way and diving down slides. It's good stuff. So He's one of those ones too, that there's all the rumors about like his body parts going missing after he died. Yeah. So that's one I did see that one as well. And that was also disproven, but basically somebody did take a tendon from his body and then somebody started passing this tendon off as his penis, but it wasn't it's probably a snip of his Achilles or something like that. So yeah. Weird. People do like to steal body parts after yes, people you know, die. Rasputin and everything else, you know, people people well, like to steal phalluses for some reason. They like cut their ears and stuff like that. Like, why? Yeah. Like, weird yep. souvenirs, folks. Yeah, need a need a trinket, man. You know. Yes. Well, all so right. Well that there. that does my story, I guess. So I think you did a fantastic job. Um, Napoleon's a very, and I know you probably just t- touched the iceberg, like the tip. Oh of yeah, it. this is the sort of thing you could spend your life, you know, studying each of these various, you know, coalition wars and all this sort of stuff. But it's 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 pretty wild. Yeah, and supposedly, like in part of his love affair with Josephine, he would send back like priceless jewelry and stuff. And there was always like the stories that some of his campaigns were really just so he could go steal jewels to send back <laughs> to Josephine. He's probably just after some Fabergé eggs or something. Yeah. Right. I mean. Yeah. Girl like shiny stuff. He treated yep. her well sometimes. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. Well, th- thank you everybody for listening to us again and listening to our hundredth our episode. You've you've helped us get this far. Wouldn't be doing it without some listenership, so that is fantastic. For realsies. And as always, you know, recommend to your friends, rate us, subscribe, review, listen to Hollow State Audio, our intro and outro music people. And uh, join us again next week as we push on. So We'll catch y'all later. Bye. Bye-bye.